Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 47, Astronaut MD. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So if you're new to the show, we bring in NASA experts to talk about all the different parts of our space agency, and sometimes we get lucky enough to bring in astronauts to tell their story. So today we're chatting with Serena Onan-Chancellor. She's a U.S. astronaut, and she's about to launch to the International Space Station for her first space flight. She told us about her education going for engineering and medicine, her time at NASA as a flight surgeon, and her training and expectations before her first trip to space. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Serena Onan-Chancellor. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Serena, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know you were, you were really busy beforehand. You actually had a run from the fluid shift study to get <laughs> that's here. That's right. And we're actually doing it while you were here, That's too. right. That's right. Collecting <laughs> science happens 24-7 prior to flight. Oh, my gosh. I'm, well, I really appreciate your time, honestly, because I really... Now that you're about to go to the International Space Station, this is the perfect time to sit down and kind of go through your story. So let's just start with that. Let's just start from the beginning. Uh, um, you said you were born in Indiana, but you're more of a Colorado girl, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so my, my father worked at Purdue University for many years. And then when I was in junior high school, he went to go work for Colorado State University. And, and for me, high school was kind of my formative – I consider those a lot of my formative years. And it was just a beautiful place to live and grow up and made tons of great friends there. And then you know, you're making that all-important transition from high school to college, which is a big <laughs> leap. And I remember at the time thinking, ah, I want to leave home. I don't want to be here. And I look back on that now and I think, are you crazy? Colorado's beautiful. But <laughs> I, I really wanted to be someplace new and exciting and different. And I loved Washington, D.C. Um, funny enough, both my parents went to the same undergraduate institution, George Washington University. Oh, no way. Like I did. And I, I think initially they were all for it, but they said, you know, why don't you look around some more? I said, no, I love it here. I love D.C. I love the big city and I love being where a lot of things happen. So. Yeah. So that was that was your undergrad, right? So that was uh, that was going there and then you kind of moved around from there. But did did your inspiration for for pursuing uh, uh, this was in when you were at George Washington, you were pursuing an, an engineering degree, right? That's correct. So I, I, I entered uh, my undergraduate program as an electrical engineer mm -hmm. and my father was an electrical engineer. And so and <laughs> so where did that inspiration, where did that inspiration come, come from? from? And, and again, part of this is stemming from, hey, I want to work for NASA someday. Oh, and OK. I knew, and, and you know, when my parents sat down with me, my, my father, of course, was like, you want to work for NASA? You be an engineer. And so um, an I was good at math and science. I really enjoyed the engineering curriculum. But interestingly enough, as I began that curriculum, I had finished my sophomore year mm -hmm. uh, at GW, and uh, most of my friends were pre-med engineers, which I didn't even know that curriculum existed. I didn't know that engineering and medicine had a combined track. Yeah. And they all came to me and said, Serena, we think you should be a doctor. You're, you're great around people, and, and we think you should look at this program. So it was really, I, I have to credit my friends whom, you know, a lot of folks think that college kids are just trying to find their way through life. They had a lot of insight, and those friends shared that insight with me. So I went home over the summer, talked about it with my mom and dad, and said, I think I need to do this. And they said, okay, we'll support you. Took a couple classes at home over the summer to catch back up with um, some of the prereqs I hadn't finished and then came back on board my junior year as 
a pre-med engineer. So it was, uh, and, and from that point on, it was, it was neat because I got to take some classes in biomedical engineering as well as a senior. And I really enjoyed the way you could combine the human body or medicine and engineering at that time. That's, uh, th- that's actually my main question here is I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I see the connection between electrical engineering and yeah. pre-med. It seemed, they seem so different. They seem so different. The interesting thing is, and, and especially when you work at NASA today, NASA is all about engineering, no question, and mm. about the different systems. And mm-hmm. so what I, I still give lots of talks to engineering communities, and I say, you know, when you look at a, a spaceship or you look at the station, you've got the electrical power system. You've got the system that provides cooling and life support. You've got the system that takes care of waste. Well, that human body is another system that you're putting inside the larger system. Uh-huh. The only thing with the human body is it's a, not, it's, not a, it's a system you have to be very careful with. And unlike other engineering components that you can test to failure, you can't do that with the human body. Hmm. And the human body is so variable. We have some folks that um, can tolerate really hot environments really well and some folks that can't. And so having that human system integrated into the larger system of the space station is one of the biggest challenges that we deal with today. So was it mainly this idea that you were good with people, that, that your friends really pushed you to pursue the medicine, or was it maybe some other connection? I like? think it was just the fact that I related well to people, and, and oh, I still, okay. you know, because I still practice medicine actively today. Mm. Medicine is one of those fields where you have to approach a person wherever they're at. And folks, I treat folks from all walks of life, at all points in their life. And it can be a challenge to walk into a room and within five to 10 seconds, try and judge where this person is coming from. What are their concerns? How do you approach them when you talk to them? And so it, you know, it, I think, at least I like to think my friends saw that I was easily able to approach people and try to approach them with a kind of a down to earth sort of attitude and make them feel comfortable. Okay, so was it, was it did you know what kind of medicine you wanted to go into when you no started idea. this? No okay. idea. None, none, none. none. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. So the pre was truly like, all right, let me just get introduced to this field exactly. and see what I want to do. Exactly. Okay. And, and medical school does a really nice job of, of introducing you to several different fields so that hopefully the field that you go into, you click with at some point. Hmm. And, and that did occur. It did okay. occur with me because I'm an internist. Okay. And an internist is someone who treats anybody from age 18 to 118. But internists are, they are very detailed with every organ system of the body. And so when I was going through those rotations as a medical student, for me, I was in heaven because I'm a very detailed person. <laughs> I like to know every time point and I like to kind of be like a Sherlock Holmes. Someone comes in the hospital and I've got to figure out why they're sick, how they got sick, and what do they have? And so it's, it's one big detective story from start to finish. So, and I enjoy doing that. And, and internists also, they're kind of like a gatekeeper. You know, they are in charge of the primary care for a lot of their patients, whether it's high blood pressure or diabetes. They're very personal with their patients. They spend a lot of time with them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I enjoy. Because it's so broad, right? You need very to, broad. You need to understand, you, like you said, everything inside absolutely, the body. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we did a podcast episode earlier. I f- can't remember the episode title, but it was with Natasha Cho, mm-hmm. uh, another flight surgeon. I know her well. Yeah, and uh, she uh, she was talking about how different uh, specialties in medicine, yeah. you, you kind of, it's almost like they have certain personalities. They do. And she's emergency medicine, so she, she has certain, yeah. so internists have this more detailed approach, detailed I guess. Detailed approach. Yeah. Some people say anal, but, you know, I consider <laughs> it a compliment because what I tell and I teach a lot of students, interns, and residents. And mm-hmm. what I tell them is, as an internist, 
you know the most about your patient in the hospital better than anyone, better than the surgeon you consult, better than the cardiologist you ask to come see, better than anybody else. You have to know everything about your patient because you're their, you are their primary, their primary care physician, and you tie all those pieces together for them. So when they make all their visits to the different specialists and come back to you, you say, okay, let's look at the integrated story here. Mm -hmm. And you're able to explain it to them and spend time with them. See, that's, I think, one of the main differences, especially yeah. with Natasha. Coming from emergency med, it's more like a, what's the problem? Identify the problem. You got this short-term relationship, whereas an internist, yep. you're, you're talking about a long-term mm -hmm. lasting so relationship. So Natasha sees you. them, says, you need to be in the hospital. Yeah. Serena, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I take over from there. I see. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. She's so, fantastic. I love <laughs> Natasha. Oh, yeah, it was a great interview, yeah. honestly. So that so this pre medicine, um, where did you identify? So you identified that you needed to. You were like, okay, internist. That's what I want to yeah. be. So what was the next step for you? So the next step was applying to medical school, which okay. was not as easy as you think. I did not get many interviews. Um, oh, you know, it was very. And so I would give you know for anybody who's out there in undergraduate applying for med school, you know, and it's not that my grades weren't good. They were good. It's just you're applying and the competition's very stiff. So I think I got and I was living in the state of Texas. I had residency in the state of Texas, thank goodness, at that time, because mm -hmm. we have a lot of great medical schools. And so I had a lot of places I got to interview or I got to apply to, got interviews at two, got waitlisted at both institutions. So Ooh. I actually got in very late to medical school. And it's because someone took a chance on me. Huh. And I remember the interview and it was UT Houston which is now McGovern Medical School. And I remember interviewing, and they said, they looked at my application and said, NASA, what do you want to do with NASA? I said, I have no idea, but I want to work for NASA after I finish going to medical school. And I remember he said, huh, that's interesting. And at the time also, coming into medical school, very few engineers were pre-med. Majority of folks were biology majors or chemistry majors, but engineering was rare. And so again, he looked at my application and said, engineering? Mm -hmm how are you going to tie that in? I said, well, I want to work for NASA. And I think these two <laughs> fields blend beautifully. And so it was, you know, someone took a chance on me and, and it worked out beautifully, but I got in very late, probably April prior to starting that fall. So, you know, and, and, oh, and the wow. rest is kind of history, but yeah. you know, I tell folks, you know, it's okay if you don't get in the first time or, or maybe you're not their first choice. I wasn't somebody's first choice, obviously, but it works out. Wow. So you said you put NASA on your resume. Mm -hmm. And do you think that was kind of a a chance, like a bold move? Or was it, uh, I guess, it sounded like it was a curious thing for that person to look at. That. I think so. I think, in a way, I, I wanted to be truthful with what I wanted to do and, and not... I, but I also knew it would help my application stick out a little bit. And mm -hmm. that, yeah, I am different than most folks coming in because where I see my future path, where I see myself employed, maybe isn't in a normal private practice or in a hospital. It's in the space program. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, but he could tell that that's what I was excited about. That's what I was passionate about. You know, I, at that point, I'd begun to learn what a flight surgeon was. And I just mm -hmm. thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and I didn't know much about how they trained or how they got there. But for some reason, that clicked for me. And I'm guessing they offered something, the, the school offered something where it's just like, yes, that's going to help me get into NASA. Yeah. And so what happened was I was a fourth year medical student hmm. and, and people were beginning to sign up for all of these electives on the outside because they do give you that opportunity to go do one month rotations outside of the, of the school. And I said, okay, well, how do I do this? I, 
what does NASA have? So I literally just Googled NASA, medicine, a couple other search terms, and up popped a flight surgeon's phone number. Huh. And a flight surgeon that still works for NASA, Phil Stepaniak, he's fantastic. And I remember dialing his phone number. And the first time he picked up the phone and said, hello, I hung up right away. I was like, oh, I don't want to talk to this guy. <laughs> and then and if people who know Phil know he's just fantastic. And so, but I dialed back again. And I said, hey, my name is Serena. I read about these programs. I don't know how to get there. How, can I come work with you? Can I see what your, what your work is all about, what you do on a daily basis? And he goes, I'll tell you what. There's a program we have down here. It's offered twice a year. It's an aerospace medicine clerkship built for medical students. And he gave me all the contact information, and that's how I found out about it. So it wasn't because it was advertised or widely known. In, gen in general, aerospace medicine is not a field that's widely advertised. It's usually found by folks who want to find it. And so that's how I got involved. So I did that rotation. It was in October. Interviews for residency were about to start, and I learned about a special program that UTMB and Galveston had and changed all my applications around at the last second. Wow. And applied for a very special aerospace medicine, internal medicine residency. That's kind of bold. To it pick was up very bold. <laughs> and I remember, I actually remember where I was driving down the highway, sweating a little bit, thinking, oh my gosh, should I do this? Should I change all my applications around, ask my advisors for new letters of recommendation to go on a program that takes one person a year? Sure. <laughs> you know? But it has to do with the fact that NASA was always part of the plan. Absolutely. And yeah. this goes back to, I, does it go back to your childhood when, when yeah. the inspiration for NASA first came and kind of pushed you? Yeah, I just remember watching Shuttle shuttles launch third fourth fifth grade oh wow very distinctly remember challenger in the fifth grade i remember oh. where i was sitting in the classroom i remember being a little miffed because our fifth grade science teacher would not let us watch the launch we actually had to sit in class and listen to lecture and then i distinctly remember another teacher running in and saying that the shuttle had exploded and so it was very i just remember that the next few months i just watched as much as i could over and over again on the television about the disaster and the, and the investigation and and it just it very much humanized the space program for me because mm -hmm. it showed the faces of the crew and their families and you realize how personal the space program is to america and how much america loves trusts and depends on the space program as part of our existence as part of who we are to explore and then thinking even at that young age you know how does nasa move on from this how do we launch another shuttle again and we did so it was, it was really amazing and profound even for a 10-year-old at yeah. that time. Oh, ten. Oh, so it was around this time where yeah. you kind of had this sense that this is, this is something, maybe, maybe it's this community, this, this humanization that really sort of said, that's a, maybe that's a family that I want to be a part of. I just saw myself being a part of that family. And mm -hmm. call it your gut, call it your instinct. You know, for me, that's what resonated. Mm -hmm. And I still use that with a lot of folks I teach today. And I say, you know, follow your instinct. Because if something tells you something's not right or doesn't feel right, you're right. <laughs> you know, if something tells you you should be a part of this or a part of something, you're right. So I've, I've tried to use that as kind of a guiding force as well. Now, fast forward mm -hmm. and you're on the fast track to this uh, this flight surgeon program, the yeah. one that only takes a few people, Absolutely. One, one person, and now yeah. you're on your way to start getting to NASA. So where was that transition from? From where did you start um, 
Yeah. Where so did you get there? I trained for two years in the special. Um, so I completed, you know, an internal medicine residency and then aerospace medicine after that, and then immediately went to work as a flight surgeon for NASA. And, you know, I, again, a flight surgeon is somebody who, for, when they're working for NASA, looks after the astronauts and their families. And one of my first assignments was to go to Star City, Russia and be the flight surgeon or physician kind of on call for all the astronauts in training. So for me, it was, number one, I'd never been to Russia before. <laughs> totally brand new world. Never worked with so many astronauts before in close proximity and been the, the only physician out there, which is a little bit daunting because you're kind of on your own out there in Star City as the sole American physician. You are in charge. And so it was a tremendous responsibility for a very young flight surgeon, but I loved it. Um, I got to spend a lot of time with um, astronauts in the program who are still in the program today and I consider to be very close friends to learn what their life was like, to learn what their training was like and say, is this something I can see myself doing? You know, this is where I think I'd like to go. Is this, can I see myself in their, in their shoes? So, so was, was astronaut a part of the plan or, or was, it was just being at NASA part of the plan? Astronaut was definitely part of the plan, even from an early on age. Ah. So I knew, you know, hey, I'd love to be an astronaut, but it was kind of like one step at a time. Yep. You know, hey, let's get to NASA. Let's see. And, and it's very interesting when you, when you take the path that I have and you, I was able to realize my dream and become an astronaut. I also realized that all the stuff I did leading up to that, I absolutely love. I absolutely love being a physician. It is um, something that I feel like I should have been all along no matter what. Uh, I love seeing patients. I love treating patients. I love the field of medicine. So to me, it was surprising, you know, kind of what you learn along the way and learn what you love and what you're good at. So. Another piece of advice that I consistently hear from astronauts is, yeah. you know, everyone, there's a lot of different paths you can take mm -hmm. to become an astronaut, right? Yours was more of the medical route. Uh, I've talked to test pilots and, yeah. and, and geologists and everything, but what it comes down to is along the way, are you happy at each step? If you were, for whatever reason, you, you, this was where you were going to end up forever, would you be happy? And a lot of them said, yes. If yeah. I were to stop here, absolutely, I'd be happy. If I just stopped at being a physician, yes, absolutely. I, mm -hmm. would, I would enjoy that for the rest of my life. And I think that's pretty important, finding something you're passionate about and just sort of sticking with it. Absolutely. And I, I get that question a lot from yeah. very young students who, when they first ask the question, they say, what field do you think NASA would want me to go in? And I say, uh-uh, stop right there. Mm -hmm. What field do you want to go into? What do you love? Don't pick a field because you think NASA will like it. What NASA, I think, loves about the people that they bring in is the fact that they're so good at what they do, and they absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And you can't be really, really good at something unless you absolutely love it. <laughs> and so I, I tell folks, I've had even you know, young medical students say, what medicine should I go into? I'm like, whatever you want to do. What do you love? <laughs> if you love dermatology, do dermatology. Yeah. If you don't want to be a doctor at all, don't be a doctor. You know, it's, it's one of these things where you, abs I think you're right, all the folks in my office, if for whatever reason we had to leave NASA today and go back to what we were doing, we loved what we were doing. So it, 
not a problem. You'd be so happy. Absolutely. Now, there's a lot of changes for you along the way, right? Yeah. You have this, uh, first you're going for engineering, you're like, ah, well, actually internal medicine. And then you're like, actually, I like to do some aerospace mm -hmm. medicine too. So there's like, there's all these changes. Now you're in Star City, Russia. Yeah. Did you have some someone you were shadowing or or maybe, uh, was this like a first time experience? And no, you it had was. To figure it out. <laughs> you kind of figure it out. So that you, when you go out there for your first trip, you have a two week handover with an experienced flight surgeon. And that was mm. Gene Dow. Um, someone who's uh, been in the military for a long time. And Gene still does rotations out there in Star City. But Gene trained me and to, to say, you know, these are your roles and responsibilities out here. These are the unique things, unique aspects of living and working in Star City, you know, certainly in Russia itself, going into Moscow, um, the different training events. So you get a very quick two-week handover, and then it's you. And it's really you learn on the job. And folks who have worked in Russia before know that Russians really value longevity. Hmm. So for example, a lot of their jobs, you'll find the same person in the same job over all the years to come, five years, 10 years, 15 years. Whereas in America, we tend to, there's a lot of turnover in multiple positions. So someone will work three years here, then four years here. And so the Russians really value personal relationships and getting to know you. And I had a lot of trips out there my very first two or three years. And so I, in a sense, you build up a little bit of street credit with Russians <laughs> because they say, okay, she's been out here. She understands us. She knows us. So I really enjoyed getting to learn about the Russians, learn about their culture, and make some really good friendships, which I still have today, certainly with some of the Russian flight docs. Um, and that part was a lot of fun. That's right. Now, now being an astronaut, do you find yourself among the same circles and you, you know, I guess bump into someone in Star City? You know, go, the neat hey. part was when I got assigned to my expedition and I yeah. went for my first training trip out in Russia, the very first day you are there, they do a presentation to the Russian Commission where you are introduced formally. Mm. Your biography is read, so all the instructors understand where you come from, and, and then you say a few words in Russian. And it was really nice to see kind of the management stand up and give my background and say, Serena, we all know you. Our, our medicine medical colleagues are here. They remember you. You know, welcome back. And so that, that part was really nice because I f you feel like, yeah, these folks do know me. I've been here a long time. Wow. You know, and so that does... Um, it, it does buy you some credibility early on. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So what else were you doing um, when you first got to NASA before, before being selected as an astronaut? What else were you doing? Well, so I worked, um, of course, in space medicine. And so when I wasn't in Russia uh, looking out over astronauts, I was assigned, uh, I did get the chance to work on STS-127 hmm. as a flight surgeon for the, sh um, for the shuttle crew, which I didn't think I'd get a chance to do, but I thought that was really cool because... Um, you know, working shuttle ops as compared to space stations, a very different, very different style. We still had the two mission controls at that point. Okay. So we had a mission control for space station and one for shuttle. Okay. And I had done most of my training in the space station realm, and then they said, hey, you are going to be the deputy flight surgeon for this shuttle mission. Get to know the crew. You're flying out to Florida. You're taking part in TCDT and all these different preparation periods for a shuttle crew. So it was a totally different world. But those friends that I made on the crew are still my really good friends today. And the neat part about that was STS-127 had a launch delay of about a month. So they actually attempted to launch a few times. Uh, and then they were scrubbed for a month and then attempted to launch again. And in between that month time frame was when we found out that we were in the astronaut corps. And so when I came back for the second launch attempt, as the flight surgeon. I had already been accepted into the Corps. And so it was neat because those guys and ladies also celebrated that. 
And one of the neatest things that happened to me was when that shuttle crew landed. So we took up Tim Copra on the shuttle crew for his long duration stay on space station and brought down Japanese astronaut Koichi Wakata. Mm-hmm. And so when we pick up a shuttle crew, we have this special van that kind of hooks into the to the orbiter, and then we pull out the crew, and then we do all of our medical checks and everything. And I remember standing there, and Koichi Wakata was the second or third person to come out of the orbiter. And he comes through the hatch, and he sees me, and he goes, congratulations, <laughs> you're going to love it. <laughs> I just remember, I think, you know, you, this guy just landed, you know. And on, on Endeavor, and he looked at me and said, and he congratulated me. I just thought that was one of the most selfless things that anybody could ever do. That's you know? right. And it was just neat. And I don't know if he remembers that, but I remember that. Wow, that's right, because you can, mm-hmm. you can absolutely take that as your moment if you're yeah. landing, but he, he took the time to congratulate you. Yep. That's amazing. And most of them did when they walked off the orbiter. It was just <laughs> a neat thing. I think Chris Cassidy was eating M&Ms as he walked off and said, congratulations. So, so they made the announcement, so, they, so, so it was public at this time, right? So, public. so everybody knew. What about when you got the call and had to keep it a secret for a little bit? Um, when I got the call, you know, initially they said, hey, you can tell your close family members and so I did and they were very excited and I remember I was just sitting outside of a restaurant waiting to go to lunch with a friend in my car when I got that call oh and so and and, you know the rumor was depending on who called you you could tell whether or not you were in or not so if you got a call from the chief of the office generally it meant you were in if we did not get a call from the chief of the office then that meant you did not get in so I remember receiving the phone call I picked it up and said hello and they said, hello, is this Serena? And I said, yes, it is. Who is this? And so <laughs> yeah, I knew, yeah. right, and it was, it was Peggy Whitson and Steve Lindsay. And so I knew at that point, you know, and that you I had in. gotten in. Yeah, yeah. So that was neat. So you had to kind of maintain Excited during lunch, relief. huh? Yep, yep. <laughs> and then call my family, so. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> so around this time, I mean, all of this is happening all at the same time. You're deputy crew surgeon. You're, yeah. uh, you're, you know, you understand that you're an astronaut. So yeah. I want to go back to the deputy crew surgeon, though, yeah. because you said you got to work really closely and develop yeah. a relationship with the crew members. Yeah. What, what does a deputy crew surgeon do for, for the shuttle? It sound, sounds like you're with them for a while. You're with them for a while. Yeah. Do a lot of their training events, um, generally with the lead and the deputy crew surgeon do is we kind of split up the crews as far as individual medical exams. So for example, like I was in charge of Doug Hurley, I was in charge of Chris Cassidy. And so, you know, you get to know those guys really well. And I had known Doug Hurley for some time because he worked out in Russia with me um, for a while in Star City. And so it was really kind of neat to work with him out there and then to become his deputy crew surgeon on his shuttle mission. It was really (laughs) exciting. Um, and so you go to a lot of their training events when, as they prep for launch and fly out to the Cape, Cape Canaveral in Florida, you often go out there with them. Um, you get to know their families really well because you're with their families quite a bit, uh, during the pre-launch time frame, during launch and certainly after landing. So it's, it's a very personal job. The flight surgeon, you know, it's a lot of preparation up front to make sure everybody's ready to go. And then you are there to provide whatever support is needed. And a lot of times that support's not medical. It may just be emotional. It yeah. may be, hey, let me help you get lunch today. Let me help you fix lunch for your kids. You know, it's, it's a lot of that sort of stuff. That's where the skills you were talking about earlier come into play. Yeah. Yes, when your friends were saying, hey, you should go into medicine. You're really good with people. Yeah. So not only do you know the medicine, but the whole job kind of, I guess you could say, demands that you have a relationship with yeah. the crew because you're with them for so much. You, you can't are. hate each other. You so. are. And, I, and I, what I used to tell folks coming out to work as a flight surgeon in Star City is, is less than 10 to 15% of what you do is medical. The rest is just more emotional support, just supporting in whatever, 
meaning you're making dinner tonight. Or if someone is trying to fix a TV in one of the cottages, you help them fix the TV. Or, you know, it's little things. It's absolute little things. I mean, you're there. Your your calm presence is there, you know, in in case, knock on wood, anything does happen. Mm -hmm. But but a lot of it's just being there as as, um, a friend, really. So was uh, this this job, uh, um, helping out the crew of STS-127, mm-hmm. was that the last thing you did as a non-astronaut? Did the transition happen pretty quickly after that, or were there a couple things? It was. In fact, um, you know, I was afraid that if we scrubbed any longer, I wouldn't be able to take part in the mission because we had a very, and I can't remember what the start date was. I want to say it was August 20th or so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, STS-127 uh, launched in July. I think I they landed correctly. at the end of July. I and landed at the end of July. Yeah. So I didn't have, I had essentially two or three weeks post-landing before I actually entered the core. And so yeah. there's a lot of work that goes on post-landing too, rehabilitation, debriefs, everything. And I basically took part in a, two weeks of that and said, I need a week off before I start my new job. I'm out. And so... <laughs> well, yeah, you're about to go right. on a And they all understood. Yeah, so I was yeah. just really thankful that we did launch that second you know, attempt at second period and, and I was able to take part. So Right, because I guess it was pretty, as soon as you walked in the door as an astronaut, day one, yeah, you, you hit the road. You almost immediately hit the road training. Yeah. Wow. So okay, what were some of the things you were doing? You did you did a couple of really unique things. You lived underwater, you went to Antarctica, right? Yeah, I had a lot of really cool experiences the first, um, I mean, the whole, the whole time has been cool experiences, but certainly the first three or four years that I was in the Corps, mm-hmm. Uh, in 2010, you know, so I'd really been in the core oh, a little over a year when Peggy Whitson, I remember I was on an elliptical machine in the gym and she comes up to me and goes, hey, do you want to go to Antarctica? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember saying, sure. <laughs> and so, and soon, very quickly, I was on my way prepping to go on this meteorite hunting expedition for two months by the South Pole. I mean, it was one of the most remote locations on the planet and just trying to prep for an experience like that and 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 learn how to live in an extreme environment in a tent on the ice for two months. I mean, it's amazing. So that was kind of the purpose of it, right, is to, to understand about living in an extreme environment, but also the added benefit of maybe hunting for meteorites. Well, the purpose of the mission, so the mission was run out of Case Western University, and their hmm. purpose is finding meteorites. That is ah. The purpose is the science. The astronaut office says, hey, we can provide you a great worker <laughs> to find meteorites because we think this is good as a good analog to space station. We think that living here itself benefits us more. And so we're perfectly willing to send you an astronaut to help take part in this expedition to find meteorites at the South Pole. Ah. These are our side benefits that we see. Because if you asked other people, a lot of the other scientists who were out there, their main goal was not, I mean, it was neat that they were living in an extreme environment, but they didn't see how that would relate to station. We right. do, though. And, and you do learn a lot about yourself living in an environment like that, very isolated, away from family, barely connect. I mean, you could connect through a sat phone, but you certainly didn't have any internet or anything like that. I mean, you're much better connected on the space station than you are in Antarctica. <laughs> so, and it was just learning what we call good self-care and good team care. And that's, those are two very important expeditionary skills. And, and what I mean by that is self-care, meaning recognizing signs of fatigue in yourself, recognizing when maybe you're not 100% for whatever reason, you're hungry, you're cold, you're tired, you're irritable, why? You know, can you pick up on those things early and, and talk with your team and say, look, I am not 100% today. Maybe these are the reasons. And then team care, and that's recognizing those signs 
in your teammates and saying, wow, so-and-so looks really cold today. And, and we would use that. We, one of us would look really cold after a day of searching for meteorites. And so when we'd get back to our campsite, we'd say, hey, so-and-so, go in the tent and start the fire. We'll take care of fueling up the snowmobiles. For t- we'll, we'll stay outside a little longer, you know. And so it's recognizing that stuff, not only in yourself, but in your team, to make sure you pick up on things early. So you walked away with the benefit of maybe a in, more introspective look at, at saying, ah, this is, this is me, and interpersonal, mm-hmm. understanding your crewmates, but most importantly, in the isolated environment, in this, exactly. in this unique environment. And that's the same thing we learn about with Nemo. Mm-hmm. Nemo is just, it's not at the South Pole, but it is under the sea. You are isolated. You don't just swim up to the surface anytime you want because you're fully saturated. Um, you, you know, your food selection is very limited. Because you're eating mostly freeze-dried things. Very similar to Station, although Station's um, menu is much larger than what we had on Nemo. But it's, again, learning what's important to you in those environments and what things you have to protect against. Fatigue, stress level, you know, how important is talking to family? Is every day what you need? Is it every other day? You know, and Station provides all that for you, but it's learning how you work and how to make sure you pace yourself, you know, at a good tempo so you don't get too tired, so that you maintain over the long haul. Ah, so you're literally learning how to yeah. how to have these skills and basically just kind of transfer it transfer it to, to the station. space station. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you're you have a lot of training, and we've talked um, about training with a lot of the astronauts so far. But what's unique about um, you as a physician is you have a sort of unique perspective of doing research on the human body. Yeah. It, on the station. So I'm sure that's kind of, you, you have a different perspective than maybe most. You know, you have, as an astronaut, you're sort of the subject for a lot of these experiments, but you may are the subject, but also I guess you're, you're curious from the physician point of view too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so used to being the physician that treats the patient. And when you get up to space station, you are the patient, you are the science experiment. You're the one that everybody is observing and looking at and asking questions and poking and prodding and asking for samples. <laughs> and I'm happy to give the But, you know, I think just from a physician's mind, because I've studied these phenomena for so long, you still think, how would I be? Would I be that? Would my face be that puffy when I get up there? Will I feel sick to my stomach? If I do, how long will that last? Will I have a headache? How will I tolerate CO2? You know, you think about all these things and you just learn because the human body is so widely variable amongst people. Everybody's different. The neater part about the body and what I, I, what I li- the term I like to use when I talk with folks is, I don't think we give the body enough credit. The body is remarkably adaptable, remarkably dynamic. Pretty much you can put us in any situation, low level insult, meaning low levels of radiation, low, you know, increased levels of carbon dioxide as compared to where we live here, microgravity, and the body learns to live there. It learns how to adapt. And, and eventually you get, you kind of, everything settles out and you feel somewhat normal for that environment. So I'm curious to see how long it will take me to get to that point, you know, and, and how I'll live and function up there. That's, that's, those are my biggest questions. I'm really looking forward to that. Wow, it's, it's unique because it's not just 
yeah, I guess, you know, obviously, if you're an astronaut, you you would be curious to say, yeah. oh, man, when am I going to feel better? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I hope I don't feel this bad for long. <laughs> but it's inevitable. I mean, space adaptation syndrome, 80 to 90 percent of folks get it, especially first-time flyers. What's that, space adaptation syndrome? So space adaptation syndrome is a syndrome that folks get within the first few days, usually almost immediately upon going into orbit. And the symptoms can be anything from low-level nausea, maybe even vomiting, hmm. um, headache, again, feeling very puffy in the face because of that massive fluid shift that occurs. And so it's just a combination of a lot of things that, you know, I think it's that sudden shift into low Earth orbit where your body goes, oh, my goodness, what did you just do? <laughs> where ah, I? you are not going to feel good until we figure this out. You know, <laughs> I don't care what you think is going on here, but you're going to feel a little nauseous for a little bit of time. So it's, you know, but everybody gets it to varying degrees. And mm -hmm. folks who have flown before don't get it as severe. Why is that? I think the body remembers. The body adapts. It just, it's, we say the brain, the brain is plastic and people say what does that mean plastic plasticity means the brain adapts and reforms neurons and reshapes neural connections and networks based on the input so when you lose your gravitational cues when gravity is no longer there and your middle ear doesn't know if you're pitching your head forward or turning to the right it adapts and it figures out a new reality <laughs> and then when you land back on the ground it goes Oh my goodness, what did you just do? Okay, I think I remember what, I think this is gravity. Let me reshape those networks again and go back to where we used to be. So again, we don't give the body enough credit. It is amazing how it can adapt. See, when you say it like that, like almost personifying the, yeah. the body as yeah. like, whoa, what are you doing to me? Yeah. But then, like you said, it figures it out. Right, it, it, it figures it out. It finds a way, yeah, and I right. think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the inner ear part. Yeah, up down. There's, yeah. I mean, where is up and down? So what the right. inner ear does is it shuts off, right? Well, basically, the semicircular canals, everything that that measures tilt and acceleration, a lot of those are gravitational cues. Your your mm. hair cells in the ear, all that is gravitational. When you don't have gravity, suddenly it goes, huh? How do I? Which way is up? Which way is down? Well, there is no up. There is no down. Mm -hmm. And so it just reshapes, and you train it to live without gravity. And you train it so that if you are standing straight up or if you suddenly flip, it's still the same. Mm -hmm. Can't do that down here. And so, but again, it's just, it's remarkably adaptable. That's right. Yeah. I, I'll never forget a video when Tim Coper was up for his mm -hmm. uh, for the most recent uh, long duration. He, w he was there with uh, Tim Peake, and they did this weird experiment where Copra just pretty much just spun Tim yeah. Peake as fast as he could doing, like, rapid front yeah. flips. But Tim Peake didn't really get nauseous or anything. When mm -hmm. he stopped suddenly, he felt something real quick. But other than that, his body was completely fine. Yep. It was so weird. Yeah. And then to your point of... Uh, the body remembers. Yeah. I'll never forget when Jeff Williams came up for the for the most recent time, yeah. and I saw him get out of the hatch, and I saw another camera, one of the one of the six pack cameras in mm -hmm. Mission Control, and he just was flying around the corner, just he like just, normal, like normal. As yeah. like, all right, I'm back, time to go, yeah. and he didn't get sick at all, just nope. ready to go. It was just amazing to see because you you know that they're gonna be sick or feel weird. Sometimes yeah. they come in upside down and don't know which way is right. Very disoriented. But yeah. Jeff Williams had no problem. Nope. His body remembered. His brain remembered. I, I fully expect <laughs> Alex to be the same way. You know, I'm yeah. flying. Alex has flown before, and my Russian commander in the Soyuz, Sergei Prokopiev. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're both rookies, and so I think 
you know, now our journey to space station is two days long. We have a 34 orbit rendezvous, so we'll be in the capsule for a while. And that will give us a little bit of time to adjust. Okay. But once we open that hatch into the larger volume of station, people say you get a little disoriented again because yeah. now what's up, what's down, left, right, you know, everything's different. So. Huh. Do they do they tell you whenever you go to the hatch of the Soyuz, just say, by the way, this is going to be the ceiling, no. so you don't know? No. no you figure it out. You just, because the thing is, when you see people, when you first come in to station, they could be oriented. One person could be upside down, and one person... Oh, so they purposely throw you off? No, I think it's just natural for them, <laughs> oh, so they don't they okay. even think about it. That's right. It's whatever's comfortable to work, because you can work in 3D. So, yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I, I'm curious to see how how you would um, how you're going to look at it from uh, from a flight surgeon Absolutely. perspective. Me too. <laughs> have you talked with other flight surgeons who have flown like Chell or, uh, or? I have, I yeah. have, and you get different experiences from both. And, hmm. and Mike Barrett especially is really good at explaining sort of this adapt these adaptation periods where you first get there and when you first get on space station, I mean, you will hold on to a handrail for dear life because you don't know how else to control yourself. Oh, yeah. And so you just, and he shows pictures of himself the very first couple days on station, just holding on to everything with all this strength to, because it just, he felt he needed to do that. And then after a period of time, you realize just a slight toe tap, a slight touch, and you can shift position and you can stabilize yourself and you can go around a corner gracefully and not look like, you know, an acrobat that's fallen down or, but and he, so he talks about these periods of adaptation until you reach this deep adaptation hmm. where your body just feels like it belongs there to a degree. And you don't have to think twice about performing actions or turning a corner or where your head is positioned relative to your feet. It's not even something that crosses your mind. So are you absorbing all of these tips and, and I try, yeah. yes. <laughs> so I think the other one that I remember too is Mike Hopkins. Because I asked him, hmm. I said, hey, once you guys made it into orbit on the Soyuz, what did you feel like? And he goes, I felt like I was hanging from the ceiling. I had this, and it's called an inversion illusion. And he says, I literally felt like my feet were on the ceiling and I was hanging upside down. And I've had a couple people say that. Hmm. And so, and they're not physically, but their brain is perceiving that. And it, my only guess is that because the fluid has started to shift upwards. And Kate Rubens also said, it feels like you're hanging off the edge of your bed with your head down. And so huh. is that where that's coming from? I don't know. So it's yeah. going to be fascinating. That, I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to imagine myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll never go to the space station. <laughs> but, but I'm trying to imagine myself in this situation. And I, I can see, what, like you're saying, your body just trying to figure out what's up and down. Yeah. I mean, if you're hanging upside down and you're looking, you understand, okay, I'm upside down. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit because of the gravity, yeah. but your sight, you yeah. know, you know that. So if you're, if you have no way of telling if you're upside down right. or not, I imagine like your vision just doing this. Yeah, I think you just have thing. to get used to it, and it just very quick the body adapts. Yeah. it I'm, learns. I'm getting dizzy just thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Well, going up on your increment, anything that you're sort of looking forward to? Maybe a particular experiment, or maybe some some operations that are coming up on yours. I think one of the, you know, again, the human science is one of the biggest things I'm looking forward to mm -hmm. going up on station. Um, and again, we're hitting all parts of the body. There's experiments called fluid shifts. There are experiments called neuromapping. Um, you know, where we're looking at how the brain reacts to being in low Earth orbit, being in microgravity. Um, and then, again, with fluid shifts, looking at how um, the vessels change, your blood vessels change in microgravity. How does that impact the eyes? Because we do tend to see changes in the eyes of astronauts as they live on board the space station. And for some astronauts, um, 
that means that they can't read as well as they did before when they were uh, on Earth's surface. It's harder for them to read procedures to become what we call a little more presbyopic, which means their close vision is not as good as it was. And so we think that there are a number of factors as to why this happens, but it, a good portion of it is the way fluid is shifting and moving in the body and maybe impacting the eyeball itself. So I'm most interested in looking at uh, the changes and all the experiments that are done on us, on people. That being said, there's a lot of engineering stuff that's going to be going on as well. Um, we're going to be testing some new carbon dioxide removal systems on board station. Um, we're going to be changing out this really big panel inside our airlock. It's called the UIA, and the UIA panel is the panel that our two spacewalkers interact with prior to going outside on a spacewalk. That's a big deal when we change out something that big for spacewalks. Um, so we'll be working on that. Uh, hopefully, we're going to see a lot of visiting vehicles, SpaceX Dragon capsules and Japanese HTV vehicles. So it's, I'd love to see a, a, probably an unmanned commercial crew vehicle. Don't know if that'll happen, but I will keep my fingers crossed. Wow. A yeah. lot of great stuff coming up for stuff. you yep. and uh, a lot of training until you get to there. So yes. I guess, Serena, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. The best of luck on the rest of your training thank and the best of much. luck on your mission. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Serena Anand-Chancellor. She's going to be going to the International Space Station here in a few weeks, so you can follow her on her social media account. She's on Twitter, at Astro Serena, and she'll be uh, sharing some pictures and some stories from her time aboard the International Space Station. Uh, you can also go to nasa.gov slash ISS to get the latest and greatest on uh, things going on aboard the International Space Station, but also how you can launch her, watch her launch live. Uh, we can, we'll also be streaming it on social media, uh, especially Facebook, but I think it'll be on Twitter, maybe Instagram. No, not Instagram. But you, anyway, you can follow us on any one of those platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, the International Space Station accounts there. Otherwise, you can listen to other stories going on across the center, uh, or actually across the agency, and other NASA podcasts. So there's Gravity Assist, hosted by Dr. Jim Green up at NASA headquarters, and then NASA in Silicon Valley tells stories of uh, different scientists and engineers and some of the cool stuff they're doing over at the Ames Research Center in California. But if you go to social media on our accounts, on the International Space Station accounts, you can use the hashtag AskNASA on uh, your favorite platform, whichever one you want, uh, to submit an idea or maybe you have a question for the show. And just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast and we'll see if we can answer it or maybe dedicate an entire episode to it. So this episode was recorded on March 9th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, John Stoll, Pat Ryan, John Streeter, Brandy Dean, and Kelly Humphreys. And thanks again to Dr. Serena Anand-Chancellor for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.